This is Salt and Spine. Going deeper into the history of pies made me better able to articulate the importance of what it means and the kind of vehicle, culinary vehicle it is. It's so versatile and so timeless. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You're tuning in for our special Pie Week to kick off 2021. We're taking some time to celebrate all things pie, including three all-new episodes with authors of pie cookbooks. And you just heard from our third and final Pie Week guest, Petra Paredes. Petra's life story is looped around pie from the very beginning. Before she was even born, in fact, her parents opened Mom's Apple Pie Company in Leesburg, Virginia. And Petra and her family's life revolved around pie pretty much ever since, be it the right fat to flour ratio for dough, hers is a little different than her dad's as you'll learn, or the produce grown on the family farm and destined for scrumptious fillings. But as you'll hear in our conversation, Petra wasn't certain that pie would be her career path. She took a short detour, but before long she was back and opening up her own pie shop in New York, Petey's Pie Company. And now in her first cookbook, Pie for Everyone, one. She's pulling together the last seven years of professional knowledge from running her now two locations of Petey's, the name, by the way, is an ode to her childhood nickname, as well as her lifelong family-instilled intuition for what makes great pie. With more than 80 recipes for both sweet and savory, plus there's short essays on Petra's life, the history of pie, and some of her trusted produce purveyors, Pie for Everyone is a deep dive into the story of pie and how to make it a staple in your home. Petra joined us remotely for this week's show. Stick around. We're, of course, playing a fun little pie-themed game at the end of the episode. And we've got featured recipes from her cookbook, Pie for Everyone, for you. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Petra Paredes joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Petra. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yes. And we're here to talk about um, your first cookbook, Pie for Everyone, which is beautiful. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. I have loved looking through it the past couple of days. Yeah, I'm really proud of it. I, um, it, it was, uh, I don't know, some, in some ways really similar to what I expected, but, uh, kind of beyond what I expected in terms of what it would take to write a cookbook. And, um, but I'm really glad that I did it. <laughs> yeah. That feels pretty on par for a first time cookbook, right? It's, it's more yeah. than you thought and different than you thought in so many different ways. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so resistant to like delegating or outsourcing anything. And, um, sometimes that doesn't always, I mean, that doesn't always work in my favor, but <laughs> but right. I'm really glad that uh, that I that I really did it myself. Well, we'll come back to the book in a second, but we always like to start by learning a little bit more about you and what sort of brought you to your career and where you are today. So I understand that pie has sort of always been in your blood, right? Your parents started a pie business before you were born. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I was born into it. And if anything, I tried to sort of get away from it. <laughs> okay. Back in. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I, my parents sort of like encouraged us to do other things and pursue what we were interested in and, you know, go, go to college and stuff like that. And, and I did, and I 
you know, I'd always worked for them even throughout college um, at their at their pie shops in Virginia. But in my mid 20s, I decided to be a teacher and I went to school while teaching simultaneously in New York City. And uh, and I taught for four years before I got, I you know, <laughs> I got sucked yeah. into a pie vortex of my own making. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. 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 I dreamed yeah. about it and thought about it. And when I met my husband, we decided to open a pie shop together. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I imagine growing up in a pie family. I mean, I think your parents' pie business sort of came from a place of necessity, right? They were sort of trying to make ends meet and, and trying right. to pie originally. Right. Yeah. They were they were working in agriculture. They had like a small a small farm operation, like a sort of a truck farm kind of thing and did a farmer's market. And and they had been sort of counting on a on a farm loan to come through that that just never never happened and they just uh you know that sort of let things slip and and they had to do something they had my oldest sister at that point she was a, a very cute little baby and they had to <laughs> figure out a way to make ends meet and they started baking in their house and selling at farmers markets um my dad just sort of saw you know he 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 saw that a lot of the pies that were at farmers markets didn't match the quality that you know he was used to from from when he was a kid and he decided he sort of worked backwards from there, like from developing the standards of what he thought a pie should be like, and then create a pie (laughs) rather than, rather than, you know, just, you know, being a natural baker or or having a strong interest in it. He's like, Hmm, this is uh, something that's lacking that I think that I can do. (laughs) And and he figured out how to make a pie that he deemed high quality and, and, and tasty. Um, enough to be proud of, proud to sell and and they became really popular at the farmers market. So by the time I was born about 4 years later, they had, you know, a really sort of a much larger operation and they were selling to grocery stores and stuff like that. And and your father's attention to detail, I guess we could call it perhaps. It, it seemed like that really became a family affair too, right? Like as you were growing up, you write about going to restaurants and like you had to dissect the pie on yeah. the menu as a family. <laughs> yeah, even today we do that and it's like okay. we're not subtle about it today. But when I was, I mean, you know, like just because like all the the kids are now adults and we don't want to be that weird at a restaurant. <laughs> but my, um, but yeah, we, I mean, we we always have to order pie when it's on a menu and break it down and see what we like and you know sometimes we're a little snobby about it, <laughs> but um, yeah, it it did make me, um, it did give me some strong ideas about what I think a pie should be and um, and I. I always loved my dad's pies. And of course, I, I strive to make them even better or just at least sort of um, align with a New York palette a, a little more than my dad's recipes do. Sure. Yeah. And how often, I mean, I imagine you were eating pie pretty often as a, a family, right? Growing up like daily. Yeah. I mean, really often I, w- I was there all the time. I mean, my parents make bread too. So bread was a staple. Their bread was a staple, a staple of our diet. Pie was okay. made more of a treat, I think, because everybody in my family has a sweet tooth and very little willpower when it comes to sweets. <laughs> so sure. to have it around and not go overboard with it. And I still don't take pie home because I will 
eat it. (laughs) I'll just be drawn to it. Um, and I, I mean, I've just never gotten sick of it. I think it's, you know, there's that many flavors, there's enough variety. So you never, it's not like just having apple pie or just having, you know, uh, you know, chocolate chest pie around it. If you have so many options, then you can kind of flit around from flavor to flavor and never get sick of it. Right. I know you mentioned this, but I like that you said your parents encouraged all of you to sort of explore other things beyond pie and beyond um, that as a career too. So I, you, you majored in um, sculpture, is that right? Yeah, I did. Yes. Uh, what were you sort of thinking? So you did sculpture, you did teaching, you, yeah. it wasn't really on your radar at all that you might come back to pie in those, those years. Maybe the reason it was hard to commit is because even those, even though exploring uh, these other things was encouraged, there was always this sort of undercurrent of expectation that one of you is going to one or all of you are going to take over the business someday. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and it's like every once in a while, like they would let it slip in this funny way. And I'd be like, aha, <laughs> like, I, I know you were just like grooming us to take over the business. Um, uh, you, you know, you could talk about how, you know, you love having artistic kids and all this stuff, but, but you do expect <laughs> us to take it over. And they were well positioned for that. Cause my sister and my brother both, um, both uh, live there and and are, and work with them, and um, I think it's like you know when you're when you're in grow up in the family business, it's just like your collective mission of the family, and you're it's just uh, it's just it sort of runs the family dynamic too. So yeah. it's sort of hard to envision your life without it. And and indeed, you know, I I thought I was going to be a teacher. I really thought I was going to be a teacher for good, but. Um, you know, I work much better as a, as a pie maker and, uh, you know, I'm much more comfortable in the sort of like, you know, burning the candle at both ends, kind of, <laughs> kind of, uh, sure. small business ownership kind of way. Um, than I do working within a bureaucracy and, uh, and, and not to mention, I mean, being a special education teacher is one of the hardest jobs in the world. So I can yeah. give myself a little grace for, for being able to like accept that I'm a better pie maker than special education teacher. <laughs> yeah. Um, and all of the organization and emotional boundaries that that requires. So if we're being really real, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, when I, when I met my husband and we talked about that, he was like, have you ever, you know, th- we were just dating. It was like, a few weeks in. <laughs> oh, a few like, weeks only. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, he was like, have you ever considered um, opening a, a pie shop in New York or has, has your family ever considered it? And I told him I daydream about it all the time, you know, like, you know, how it would be and how, you know, I thought it would be really well received. I didn't see that many pie shops around. And, um, and I was like, why you want to open one? And he was like, yeah, <laughs> he was playing poker. He was, he was really good at playing poker online and, and, uh, and had saved up a bunch of money from his poker earnings and wanted to either invest in a business or start a business. And so that was like our first like serious life plan together was <laughs> to open a pie shop. And that, uh, that, uh, turned out really well. <laughs> yeah. 
and I think it was interesting too, the sort of that prompting from your then boyfriend of like a pie business. And then you sort of just like shift paths, but you went, you didn't go back to the family business, right? You you decided you were going to do your own thing. That's funny. Like there's that, there's this whole thing at your (laughs) disposal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. In Virginia. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, we, we were really into being in New York City. And while we thought about it being like an offshoot of my parents' business, Mom's Apple Pie Company, we realized like how important it was to sort of do our own thing independently. And, um, and now, you know, none of the recipes really resemble my dad's recipes that much, except maybe the fruit fillings are, are, are quite similar. But in okay. general, everything's like a little less sweet, a, a little, uh, the fruit pies are a little, a little tangier. And, uh, and, um, like even chest pie is something that's supposed to be very sweet. It's, uh, it's like, it's, it has that nice texture of a chest pie without quite as much sugar. Um, so there's ways that we had to like adapt things to New York City. But, you know, sure. New York is, is a pie city. It just doesn't have that reputation. But all you have to do is look at those menus from a few decades ago and see that pie has been a constant until relatively recently, you know, out on just about every menu, dessert menu in New York City at any any kind of restaurant um, from a diner to like a fancy, you know, steak or seafood place. Um, it was always yeah. a meal here. And, uh, and I feel like it's been relegated to this sort of like, I don't know, um, sort of like country or Midwestern or Southern sort of reputation when actually it's just part of our collective culinary history. Yeah. And that's something you write about a little bit in the book too, not just about New York, but about the country as a whole, right? You, you open one of the early pages in the book by saying that Americans really seem to think pie is ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and and talk a little bit about the history of pie. Is that something that you had studied before you did the book? Or did that sort of come about as you were putting the cookbook together more of this research? Um, I can I can sort of thank the whole process of of uh, of writing a cookbook for m- me going so much deeper into that. Um, yeah. you know, when you spend so much of your time doing something or around a certain object or food or whatever, it's, it's really helpful to make more meaning of it. And I, I think that writing this cookbook has helped me do that <laughs> um, because it was always, there was always a feeling and I always had these certain strong opinions about certain aspects of pie or, and making it and selling it and, and what it meant. But it was, it was hard to articulate why certain things were important to me. Like why did I want to do whole pies and sell slices rather than just little mini pies? Like a, sure. what I refer to as like the cupcakeification of pie. You know, uh, yeah. something that is big and meant to be shared. And, you know, this one thing that we all this in like a shared experience and this a shared dish and turning it into like a little miniature just didn't feel right to me. And it wasn't the route that I wanted to go, uh, you know, even though there was some demand. We do that for shipping and we do that for like little gift packs. But ultimately, I want our, our main thing to be, you know, pies <laughs> and, and slices of pie. Um, and sort of going deeper into the history of, of pies made me better able to articulate the importance of like what it means and, um, and just like what, like the kind of vehicle, culinary vehicle it is. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's so versatile and so timeless. You know, you can, you can make pies at any time of year and you can make them in any place with what is made, what is, you know, what grows locally. And, um, and I think that's the really special thing about it. And you, you know, if you're taking the time to make a pie, you, it's probably for people you really care about. So that's another part of like the sort of uh, sweet symbolism of pies. We've had a number of authors on who have written pie books. And one of the things that is always interesting to me that you write about in your book too, is that in the very early days of pie, the crust was not designed to be edible, right? The crust was to help sort of like preserve the filling almost. I feel like in a lot of ways, we've sort of done the inverse of that now where the crust has become the thing that is most intimidating to a lot of home bakers, right? Who feel like really, um, we had Kathy Barrow, the cookbook author on a while ago, who uses the phrase dough phobia. Like a lot of folks have a a fear of making pie dough. Um, yeah. You have seven types of crusts at the outset of the book. How did how have you sort of worked to develop your crust recipes and make them accessible for home cooks? Yeah, so uh, I started with my dad's dough recipe, and I changed uh-huh. and I added as much butter as I could. Uh-huh. Um, found that like the main obstacle in that in getting a really like high ratio of butter to flour, so that you crust tastes like butter and not flour and you know making sure that you can do that without adding so much water that that it becomes tough the main obstacle in that was just temperatures and so while people talk about you know adding ice cold water I didn't and and using cold butter I I don't see people mention using cold flour very much but if you use ice cold flour if you keep it in the freezer instead that that makes things a lot more forgiving Uh, so if you have a hot kitchen or hot hands or, uh, or whatever, it, it makes it so that you can make a, um, a very buttery crust without having to worry about that butter melting and emulsifying and becoming too sloppy to turn into a pie. That was one of the ways it's just like, Hey, it doesn't have to be that scary or intimidating. You just have to make sure your temperatures are under control so that you can have enough time to like turn it into dough. Yeah, uh, and and also just sort of helping people with this like tricky sort of middle uh, time zone. Basically, what happens right in the middle of making the dough, which is like you're turning it from a rather dry and uh, inconsistent mixture into a dough. There's a point at which it seems like it's not going to become a dough, and it's and you yeah. don't want to just work it and knead it, but you are doing this repeated action to to turn it into a dough and it's going to seem like it's not going to work but it will if you just do that repeated action enough <laughs> um yeah. so just conveying like here's the point where you think it's not going to work but it's okay just keep doing it and it's going to work <laughs> have faith in the process have faith in the process yeah yeah there's also like pictures in the book of what that time looks like, like what the dough looks like when you think it's not going to become a dough. Yeah, those are super helpful pictures. You you said you took your dad's crust and added as much butter as you can. Does he use different fats or were you just adjusting the ratio? Oh, I was just adjusting the ratio. Okay. I mean, he already has a really high butter to flour ratio in his, uh, in his, but, um, I, I use extra high fat butter. I didn't realize how, quite how high in fat it was until recently. And that is, uh, in and of itself a really nice thing, just the content of butter fat inside the, the butter itself. But then I use a higher ratio. So it's like eight to nine by weight of uh, butter to flour. And I okay. think it's 
his is probably five to six, three to okay. four. Six. Um, so I was like, hmm, <laughs> yeah. I can take this. Um, I just love our butter. We get it from um, these two New York dairies and they miraculously make butter that's like 86% butter fat. It's so delicious. Wow. And it tastes yeah. so fresh and clean. And, uh, and I just love the dough to taste like that. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Petra Paradez. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find your chance to win your own copy of Pie for Everyone, and you'll also find two recipes from the book, a coconut cream pie and a sesame chess pie. Every week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks, from Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guest, Petra Paradez. Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club. Cook along with one of our favorite authors every month and then join us for a virtual dinner party with that author. Salt and Spine truly is bringing cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Petra Paradez, author of Pie for Everyone. You also write in the book that there are hundreds of ways to make pie. And I'm curious if you can give us a little insight into your sort of creative process. Like, do you ever stop innovating or experimenting or where do you find inspiration like how does that sort of look like to you as you develop pie recipes yeah I think that you know sometimes I it's sometimes it's um sort of taking something familiar and like taking a component of it and swapping it out so like in in the chess pie for example like we use you know chess pie is made with butter but I thought it would be really neat to make it with um a seed or a nut butter instead and sort of play around with that, what that is. So like, you know, sesame seed butter is tahini. Uh-huh, <laughs> and so right. that's how our, our sesame chest pie came to be. And, um, and it's sort of like a cult favorite, like the people who love it really love it and they demand it. <laughs> they make Instagram threats and <laughs> they really want us to bring it back. Um, but uh, it's just a matter of swapping out some of that, regular dairy butter for sesame butter and just noticing sort of like flavor combinations that I like together, like, um, like lemon and poppy seed, like that earthiness that's sort of hard to define of a poppy seed and the brightness of a lemon. And so like one of the, the picture that's on the back of the book, um, it's like a lemon meringue slice with poppy seeds in the meringue. It's also really nice with poppy seeds in the crust itself because they get even more toasted. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quite simple. It's just a matter of like tweaking something or adding something but it, it has, you know, a really neat effect in the end. We're quite used to lemon meringue pie, but lemon poppy seed meringue is a whole other like aesthetic experience as well. And I know you focus a lot on ingredients, like you learned from your parents on having the best fruit, the best produce. How do you, or what advice would you sort of give to home cooks who are trying to make really incredible classic pies, right? Like I want to make a cherry pie and I want it to be the best cherry pie. What are your sort of tips or same for apple or, you know, peach, what are some of your tips and tricks for how to make it really shine? 
Fruit pies in for fruit pies in particular, you just have to start with really, really good fruit. And yeah. unfortunately, like we are so while we are in this position where we have access to more foods and a wider range of foods just at a regular supermarket more than ever before in history. The quality of those foods is not necessarily high. And especially when it comes to the pressure of having the economic pressures and uh, of like globalization of just like having things available <laughs> at all times. It means that there's like more of a pressure on like, um, quantity than quality sometimes. And, and so, you know, fruit growers are going to be looking more for like varieties of fruit that are will withstand travel more so than varieties of fruit that actually taste really good. So like the strawberries, for instance, that you get at the store, they're going to sometimes look really good, or sometimes they'll look just gigantic and massive. And they're like pithy and have like a uh, hollow, white, tasteless center. Right. Uh, and those are not what you want to turn into a pie. As much sugar and lemon juice you can add to that, it doesn't make it taste good. It, it, you can enhance it to a certain extent, but you actually really have to start with good fruit. And so that, um, you know, if you are in a place where you can have access to a good farmer's market, small farmers are more likely to, you know, be like my dad and they'll look through these seed catalogs and they'll be choosing things for their flavor and, you know, like vibrance of flavor rather than their ability to withstand travel because they know that they can pick it and take it to the farmer's market and sell it directly to people. And so just sort of connecting with your local farmer's market, if you are lucky enough to live in a place to, to have one, is something that I highly recommend. Or if you have a place, if you live in a place where you can visit a pick farm and you know, ask the farmer what their favorite berries are. That That's the th funny thing about farmers. They have their favorite berries <laughs> and they can probably go on all day. Um, my my brother and my dad are farmers and they'll just talk about the, their favorite new varietals and they get really excited about this stuff. So I say, you know, if you can connect with a farmer and, and see what um, they want to share with you and what they're excited about. Yeah. And, and I think you took that lesson sort of to heart when you were putting this book together too, because you decided to include little, maybe we call them vignettes of producers and growers and farmers. We, as, as people are leafing through your cookbook, they'll learn about like folks who are growing currants and, and blueberry farmers. How did you decide to sort of incorporate that element into this cookbook? Because those are, those are the farmers. I mean, the farmers that are purveying our ingredients are a huge part of why our pies are so good. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wanted to sort of let their stories um, sort of be the stars of the book because they're all really interesting and dedicated and sort of zealous in their own way. And I, I get to meet farmers and talk to them and, um, I think that people would be interested in their stories. Uh, not everybody gets to connect in the same way. So being able to sort of meet your food purveyors <laughs> or potential food purveyors um, can be a really fun experience. And, um, you, you know, just to know these people who are doing this, and it, it's really just a labor of love. It's not like, you know, none of these people are like... <laughs> you know, subsidizing and enriching themselves off of becoming farmers. They do it because they believe in it and they do it uh, because it's just like quality food is something that they care about and being good stewards of the land is something that they care about. 
you know, I think it shows in each of those, each of those little stories about those farmers um, that they do the work that they do because, you know, they can go to sleep at night <laughs> and, and know that they've done something um, good and uh, good for the world. <laughs> um, good. Uh, and, you know, they're, they are, doing something that is um, not really any potential for harm in what they're doing. It's, what they're doing is a net good. And, uh, and it comes at sometimes a high expense for them. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, they, they work a lot, <laughs> they work a lot and they're, they, they um, it's something that they do really truly as a labor of love. Yeah. I come from a family, a farming family too. And it is oh, an wow. intense industry. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not easy work. Yeah. Um, you tackle some some maybe controversial topics in the book too. Like people may be shocked to know that pumpkin pie is not an American Thanksgiving creation, right? You actually say that pumpkin pie is, is French and not even made of pumpkins if we're sort of talking about the classic version. Um, did that also come from your research in, in putting this book together? Yeah, I was curious uh, that, I mean, my research for that came because I was specifically curious about like how we use pumpkin and how if pumpkin pie really was as old as, you know, we are sort of told that it is or that, you know, that it was like, or, or that sort of like the imagery that we're exposed to suggests that it is like in terms of like our ideas of the first Thanksgiving and all of this Um you know, along the way, I learned some some different things, and 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 the there was sort of a point at which I I realized like I really wanted to try cooking the pumpkin in the dairy, and I was curious to see how that used to be done, like how like did people cook pumpkin separately and add it in? I feel like in the past that people were more likely to do things in the most expedient way. <laughs> and, and, and so I was very curious and I found all sorts of versions of like pumpkin custards and things and, um, you know, uh, pumpkin pies where it would be like pumpkins and pieces of pumpkin and apple and like a fruit pie, uh-huh. pie kind of manner, which is okay. I might like to try someday. Um, and like custards that were cooked inside of a pumpkin. So you would have like a, you know, milk and eggs and sugar and spices. And you would just like hollow out a pumpkin and, and put all that in there. And so it'd be wow. like the pumpkin flesh would, um, would soften as it's cooked and the, and the custard would cook too. And you just kind of scoop it all out. Also sounds very good. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, this manner of like um, cooking pumpkin inside of the or just in the dairy, as I suspected, was not, you know, I wasn't the first person to do that, <laughs> even though I've never seen it recommended in a pumpkin pie recipe. It's nice because, um, you know, you can use a lot more of the pumpkin that way. You can use the skin and then just blend it all together. Um, and I found in very old recipes that that was indeed something that that was done. <laughs> you, you're kind of, uh, it's like two birds with, you're like making the filling while also cooking it before, before you fill up the pie rather than cooking the pumpkin separately. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, all of those like lovely custard dishes that were 
part of European cuisine had to come together with like a indigenous agriculture that that you know Europeans sort of you know happened across as they as they as they colonized these places so that you know they were among the many benefits <laughs> uh, for for Europeans it was uh, like just this uh, all of these foods that were brand new to them among them pumpkins and gourds and pumpkins and gourds are you know just obviously such a like a sustaining food and all all parts of them were used by native americans you know seeds and you know dried pumpkin you know could be used and reconstituted later on um in in by boiling it and um sure. sort of like a jerky <laughs> kind of like uh-huh. a pumpkin and like the dried gourds can be used you know as containers and so, you know so many so many uses for this amazing plant um but uh but yes of, of, of among the decadent um sort of european style ways of using it would be to incorporate it into a custard and uh and and naturally a custard pie but yeah, I mean the 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 pumpkins that we use, the pumpkins that most people will use, and still to this day, most people use to make a, a pumpkin pie is actually botanically a squash. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the same shape as butternut squash or as like a neck pumpkin, which is like you know looks like a butternut squash but with a really long neck. Sure. Um, but it, it has a sort of rounder, an oblong rounder shape, more akin to a pumpkin. But that is indeed what we use. Like that's indeed what's in like Libby pumpkin, canned pumpkin. It's fine. I mean, and for that reason, I've never thought that it was necessary to like disclose that we're using kabocha and butternut squash in our pumpkin pies because they're they're pretty much the same. Like I don't think that it's like a dirty secret, (laughs) (laughs) right? And so, so I wrote a whole essay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It might not be a dirty secret, but it's a, a wonderful little tip for yeah. for folks. And just so we understand like the, the history there. I know this is a loaded question. Um, mm-hmm. And to ask about a favorite pie is probably something you do not like to get asked, but I'm wondering if there's like a pie, like it's your the last slice of pie that you can ever have in your life, what would, what would your last slice of pie be? The one that just sums it all up for you. Oh my God. I know it's such a hard question. <laughs> I, I, you know, the funny thing about like the favorite pie question is like, there's a few that I like, will say again and again. And then sometimes I'll just give like a completely different answer. <laughs> uh-huh. it's like, it's like whatever I've just been, whatever kind of pie I've been daydreaming about. Right. Whatever you're in the mood for. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, the one that I come back to again and again is is coconut custard, you know, because like the, the coconut rises to the top and the coconut um, and it caramelizes like, the, you know, and the sugar from the custard filling is and sort of coating it and it becomes nice and toasty brown. So like it has one texture on the top and then like a flan like texture in the center of the custard and then crispy, like light um, flaky crust. So I think it's that one. Yeah. <laughs> Today yeah. it's that one. Yeah, that's yeah, that's my yeah. Often I say coconut custard is my favorite and and part of it is because I I I love an underdog and I it's like it's one that I wish got more shine because it's so delicious. Yeah, I love that. 
Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we'd play a couple short rounds of this pie themed game. So I've got a card here that's got different ingredients on it. One side is savory. I know you have savory pies in the book as well and and at your stores. And one side is more on the sweet side. So there are 60 ingredients here. So I'm going to let you pick a number between one and 60. And I'll tell you the ingredient and see if you might conjure up a pie that sort of highlights that ingredient for us. And for your reference, the first 30, 1 through 30, are more on the savory side. And the second 31 through 60 are more on the sweet side. So we can do one of each or something. Oh, okay. All right. So Where do we want to start? All right. Uh, how about 15? 15 is spinach. Ooh, spinach. Um, yeah. So I would say like a, a, like a sort of, you know, like the Greek spanakopita or is that how uh-huh. you say it? i'm not sure yeah yeah that's right yeah uh, spanakopita spanakopita i don't know um <laughs> so something based on that you know i can get nice nice fetas and things around here but i also really like a good farmer's cheese so i would like make a, a spinach and feta style pie but with a nice farmer's cheese so a little more mild and uh, i'd punch it up with some some garlic i would say yeah Mm, that sounds delicious. That's that's great. Should we try a sweet one? Thirty-one through sixty. Yeah, uh, let's do thirty-six. Lucky thirty. Thirty-six is nectarine. Ooh, I love a nectarine. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, in my book, I say that, you know, like you can make a peach pie with a nectarine and I won't tell anybody because similar, I mean, they're, they're even more identical than, than squash and pumpkins. They're actually like, it's like the nectarine is just a peach with a mutation that gives it no fuzz. Um, uh, and what's nice about that is that you can like the closest to the skin, like that part is the most, and the, and the skin itself is super flavorful. So if you can like get all that flavor without the without being bothered by the, by the fuzz. It's so good. But yeah, so I would say as far as inventing something new, as in something that I haven't, you know, already, you know, done my homework for and that's like in the book or something, I would do like, um, sort of like a vanilla custard, sort of like a, like a creme brulee kind of, you know, vanilla bean custard, like a blind bake shell, vanilla bean custard, and then uh, grilled nectarines, like grilled nectarines Yum. on top of that. I think that would be kind of like one of the ultimate summer pies. It'd be really good. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> delicious. That sounds incredible. I want, I want to try that now. Well, this is so much fun. Thank you so much, Petra, for joining us. Yeah, thank you. That's fun. Really fun questions to answer and talk about. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from Pie for Everyone. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes, and you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine was typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Is 
your prostate waking you up more often than your alarm clock? The fact is, the older you get, the more likely you'll have prostate problems, which can affect your everyday life. That's where Prostate Complete by Real Health comes in. Prostate Complete is the result of 20 years of experience as a leader in men's health. The powerful formula in Prostate Complete supports natural prostate function and reduced urinary urges for a better quality of life. Available at Walmart. Visit prostateoneperday.com for special offers. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.